Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Victor Davis Hansen is a fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and professor emeritus of classics at Cal State Fresno. He is the author of many books and I would say one of the leading cultural commentators in the United States today and actually for the past couple of decades. Uh, his new book is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hansen. Thank you for having me. Uh, first, let's just do some definitions uh, that come up early in the book. Who are the, quote, progressive elites? Wh whom do you mean by that? These are people who are, uh, can be defined economically, socially, culturally, politically, but they tend to be people who have uh, bachelor's degrees or more commonly even uh, graduate degrees or professional degrees. They tend to be active in areas that I would call um, media, academia, corporate world, entertainment, foundations, as opposed to the muscular classes or the earthy classes. By that, I mean they're not lumberjacks, they're not farmers, they're not assembly manufacturers, they're not truck drivers. So they're the intellectual classes or the corporate classes. And then less specifically, they tend to be high income and a lot of them geographically cluster around, I would call the two coastal strips, maybe Seattle to La Jolla and maybe New York to Washington. And uh, that's where the nexus of Wall Street is. That's where the media headquarters are in Washington, New York. That's where the capital and all of its cabinetcies are. That's where Silicon Valley is. That's where Harborddale, Princeton, Stanford, UC Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera, are. And those overlapping definitions, I think, cover them pretty well. Uh, when you use the term citizen, for you, is simply a legal definition sufficient to characterize what makes a citizen? Well, that's certainly ultimately what does a person is a citizen or is not a citizen historically, whether they were, depending on the definition of the particular nation or city state, what the rules were, whether you had to be born but to two parents or one parent or you were naturalized, et cetera. But I use it in two terms. One is the strictly legal sense, but uh, one of the arguments of the book is you can be a legal citizen and no longer really be a citizen in the real sense of the word. That is an autonomous uh, resident that has particular legal rights and responsibilities in exchange for them, and then audits or censors uh, the government that is consensually elected. 
and lives within a defined space, uh, has secure borders, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot of people here, maybe the majority now, that are legal citizens, but they're not really in charge of their government or their culture, or they're not the defining force in their society, even though by numbers they may be. Yeah. You say at, at one point, quote, sometimes citizens can do as much harm to their commonwealth by violating custom and tradition as by breaking laws. What are some prominent yeah. examples of that happening today? Yeah, well, first I meant that I think it's true. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that democracy or Republican government or constitutional consensual government, however we define it, is very rare historically. And even today of the 190 nations in the world, I think most people think about 90 of them are consensual. Now that 90, when you start looking at them, not all of them are consensual. So it's kind of a fragile idea and it requires constant investment in it and stewardship of it. And by that, I mean, it's not just that you vote as you should as a citizen or you obey the laws that you help create, but you also have a general awareness of your particular society or government or state in, in terms of the past and the present. And what do I mean by that specifically, as you asked? I don't think it's much to ask for people either to stand up in a, at a sporting event and sing the national anthem or pledge allegiance. That wasn't always true, but we always had some sort of custom or ritual like that in the United States, or that we should have a common civic education that would bond us. And by that, I mean that people, when they graduated from high school, would all know what the Gettysburg Address was, or they had some idea of what July 4th meant, or they might even know what the Battle of Gettysburg was, or maybe even they knew what Normandy Beach was, but they had a common reference that they shared and that inculcated ties. And again, the subtext of all this is that a democratic, multiracial, multicultural society is very fragile and can easily revert to sort of open migratory borders or tribalism unless these artificial bonds are emphasized because the natural way of humans past and present is to identify by superficial appearance or common religious ties, etc. You You note a curious, well, I don't know if it's a paradox or not, but as more as we see a long advance of more and more rights granted to more and more people more and more specific groups there is something of a decay of citizenship that takes place is is that because you said a moment ago rights and responsibilities is there a balance or is there is there an inverse relationship the more rights you give people sort of the the, the fewer responsibilities they yeah, assume, I think also. That... Yeah, I think that's exact. And I and I talk about that at various places in the books. The more freedoms that you give give to people, uh, it becomes sort of a perpetual motion machine. Then you think, well, I get more and more, and I get this, I get this, and so you start. And it's also closely embedded with market capitalism, consensual government. That when you create so much affluence and leisure, people get very unrealistic and they can they think that there's a certain birthright that because you're materially able not to worry about being hungry the next day or you can call santiago chile in a second now 
Therefore, you're getting close to technological or material perfection. And so, especially in Western societies, and people say, well, why is there any poverty at all? Why is there any racism at all? Why, why are we not perfect just as we can be perfect in certain aspects of our life? And they don't accept the idea that, of the tragic view of the world, that we all die, that there's chance and fate and things go wrong and we try to do the best as we can and we should be happy that we're far better than the alternative rather than, than, than achieving perfection. But that, and that's, I think it's tightly bound up with progressivism, the idea that each year the world gets better or should get better and human nature changes for the better and therefore laws and freedoms and equality will always get better. And uh, the, the, we're going to ask less and less of each citizen because we want to free him up to write or paint or meditate or have more leisure or more time that we've sort of conquered the age old material challenges of, of existence. We're not canning our own food. We're not having a garden. We don't have a shotgun above the fireplace to make sure our family's secure. So the existential things are over with. That's all our less liberal ancestor did that stuff and now we're free to pursue this unlimited freedom right one of the values i think of the dying citizen is the way in which you borrow upon your scholarly background to go back in time and reflect upon the distant past and, and bring that into the present we've got this income inequality issue here why did the greeks mistrust both the poor and the rich and it, it's funny because they were a society that was very empirical, especially thinkers like Thucydides and Aristotle. And by that, I mean, they weren't worried when they made an observation, uh, how it sounded to the majority of people, even whether it endangered them politically, although they were in danger politically, both of them were. And so they say things that would be, I don't know, considered untoward or illiberal today. But in the case of Aristotle, especially in the politics, he more or less says that a he gives you uh, typologies of democracy, but he says when you have a large middle class, and that's the majority of people, and they're the muscular classes, not only do they not have time to go into Athens and be what he calls agora loungers, but they have a natural distrust of the poor, and he feels that because the poor don't have property, they don't pass on property to other generations, and they're much more dependent on either government or they're going to be dependent on the very wealthy for largesse, they lose their political independence and they're not property owners. And in the case of the ancient world, that means farmers mostly. And then in the case of the wealthy, they have so much property beyond their immediate needs that acquisitiveness becomes a reason to be in itself. And they like to stalk their family or friends in government or monarchies or they they revert to oligarchies or aristocracies because they they have these special interests and they're so adept at it he, he does both all of the ancients thought there were things like natural talent and that there were always sort of an iron law of oligarchy that these people would rise to the top and they were not always as noble politically as they were gifted in making money or, or acquiring things so it was this middle class. You really see it in authors like Euripides. Um, some of the plays where he keeps saying that the middle people, he just says it, the middle people are the best. Or some of the lyric poets, I think Fakilides said, midmost in a city would I be. 
And so a lot of that chauvinism that we have in America, you go, it goes all the way back to the Enlightenment, to the Florentine Republics, and their knowledge of classical values. And they had this word, mesoi, 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 middle people, middle people, middle people. And I think that the founders were, even though they were largely aristocratic, they, they felt that way. And I know Tocqueville did, that they were very worried about dependencies. And, uh, and then also cliques or cadres or uh, concessions of very, very limited numbers of insiders, wealthy people. So the, the, in a modern nation, the middle class is, is crucial, a, a foundation in the middle class, because the middle class is not going to be so vulnerable to demagoguery, uh, uh, I guess, and you know the promises of politicians, while they will also be uh, not so so affluent as to as to you know seek out special privileges and favors. Is this what we're yeah, seeing I, today in America? I, I think so, and I think also to be a more reductionist, there is a lot of strain that they have a unique ability to to combine muscular labor and intellectual thought. And by that I mean at least until recently, the middle class was the guy who went out and mowed his lawn or a woman who got the leaf blower and clearing out the patio. They didn't have hired help to do it. I knew how to cook a meal for three or four kids and yet could sit down at the evening table and figure out their budget or say, discuss, well, should we have a 401k or we should buy a, a rental property? Or So they were using all types of abilities, whereas the wealthy depended on subservient labor and they didn't really understand how their car worked or how to cut a limb off their tree or when the power went out they just assumed somebody would take care of it and that was not good in the greek idea because they were not you know in the olympic ideal muscular as well as intellectual and then the poor they were so physical that it became almost drudgery they had no time or training to to develop other facilities other than muscular labor and it's kind of a brutal typology but that again is what it is in the ancient mind and i think when you look at society today um the number of wealthy people and the idea we used to kind of character in those 1940s movies the you know, servants or the three stooges i remember they'd always make fun of wealthy people and all the people who were working for them but today that idea that you just don't cook your own meals and you just don't do your own yard and you just don't clean your own house that that's institutionalized and it's filtered down to the upper middle class. So, yeah, I, I think uh, the lifestyle has changed. And then when you start to look at the Fortune 400, you don't look at wealth as you did, say, 40 years ago that was generated by a timber magnet or a construction baron or a farming empire. At least these people had some knowledge of the material world. It's all investment, investment, um, you know, technology, banking, it's more, I don't know, it's, in, it's intangible, it's, it's not material. And it's much bigger, much bigger. I mean, even adjusted for inflation, the idea that we have people worth $150 billion, $70 billion. And I, I was looking at, the, when I wrote the book at the Fortune 400, and you, you really don't make it anymore if you're a billion and a half dollars. And you're not going to make it if you're a very effective trucker or you're a very effective uh, builder, unless you're also into the financial aspect or the investment aspect of your business. We turn more closely to the present. You say you, you, you turn to California, 
where you live and have lived. Uh, you say, quote, California has become the progressive dream of the future and the middle class nightmare of the present. What have you observed up close? Yeah, well, I was talking specifically, and Michael Bloomberg said that, that he thought during his aborted campaign in 2020 that California was going to be a model for everybody. And then it's been a night for nightmare for the middle class. If you look at statistics, it looks like the last 35 or 40 years or somewhere between seven and 10 million people of the middle class have just left. But what I was uh, talking about is that in terms of taxation, take income tax in California, the the bottom 50% don't pay any, but uh, the top 10% pay about 90% of it. And I think you could say the top 10%, you could call upper middle class in California, people that make up to $400,000, because we're talking about housing now, it's $1,000 a square foot, anywhere other than where I live in the center, which is pretty impoverished. But more specifically, when you look at the tax burden in terms of state capital gains tax, uh, state sales tax, sales tax averages about top 10 capital gains, I think is second now. Our gasoline tax is higher than Pennsylvania or Connecticut, highest in the country. Our income tax is the highest at 13.3% level. And as I say, even it graduates down. And then you look at what you get for it. Uh, our roads or an infrastructure are usually rated about 40th. Or schools are about 43rd in the nation. And uh, San Francisco has the highest property per capita crime rate in the United States. And we have one third of all welfare recipients and 21% of the population lives below the property line. And we have, according to both Fortune and Forbes, we have the most hostile climate for small businesses. What you're getting is a medieval bifurcated feudal society of very, very wealthy people on the coast and then a lot of subsidized poor in the interior of the, of the Central Valley and the foothills of the Sierra and the Inland Empire down Los Angeles, because there is a ge- geographical dimension to this. And then the largest concentration of wealth in the history of civilization, and, and especially in Silicon Valley. But so the middle class doesn't see anything there for them. They think, you know, if I went to Idaho, or I went to Nevada, or I went to Texas, or Florida, or Utah, I would be paying far less taxes in every aspect of that word tax, whether it's gas or income or sales. And then there would be fewer regulations. The schools would be better. The roads would be better. The airports would be better. And so that's why I'm going to move. And they've left. And that's why politically, this is a state that gave, you know, the country Ronald Reagan, it gave them um, three other eight year terms of uh, George Dick Mason, Pete Wilson, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And now it's a one party state has super majorities of hard left Democrats in the state assembly, state Senate, not one Republican officeholder statewide, not, not the governor gave us the ninth district court in San Francisco that's very liberal. I think we only have 11 of the 53 congressional seats are Republican. So it's a one state that reflects that power and that greater population. About half the population lives 55% along the coast. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. 
That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You turn a lot to the rise of populism, uh, the phenomenon of Donald Trump, and the situation of the administrative state. Uh, the populism uh, was... Do, do you see the populism that arose in the teens as really a middle-class phenomenon? Yeah, it's not a lower-class phenomenon. No, I don't think it is. I think the lower class has been, uh, I don't know what the word is, compromised by um, lavish government subsidies and help so that they feel that while they may be static or ossified, that they're going to to, to have a, an existence that's you know pretty comparable in the age of technology to the middle class of a few years ago. But the middle class populism, they're people who feel that they're tenuously clinging to a middle class lifestyle and their children are not going to have it. They look at their children and they say, my God, you know, Bob has $30,000 in student debt and the degree is not competitive. Why did he do that? Or this person, um, you know, we owe all this money. We're, we're paying $500 a square foot for a home. We're never going to pay this mortgage off or we, our wages are not going up higher than the rate of inflation. So they feel endangered now. And then I'm trying to, in the book, not just talk about economics. So then they look culturally and they think, well, we never said that we, that our model, our template was the only model. But the idea that getting married and having two or three children and buying a home fairly early in life is somehow aberrant and that we have to say that there's this many pronouns or there's this many genders or that we have to apologize for the transgressions of people in the Civil War and it's all one-sided and, and they feel that they, are, they have targets on their back. And then when they look for relief, as everyone does, they turn to newly released movies and they think it's, you know, it's usually the evil guy is some white guy with a Russian accent or a South African accent. We, and the, the hero is somebody who doesn't look like me or somebody who's more articulate than I am, or somebody who's fighting works for a corporation is very wealthy, but the actor, but they, they play a part of an anti-corporate person or they look at professional sports and they see people not standing up or blasting them, the Colin Kaepernick's the LeBron James. And then they turn to, corporate world and they hear the CEO of Delta or American lecture them about the illiberality of asking for an ID to vote when even though you have to have an ID to get through security, get on their own plane. They look at the school board, things that we're looking at. And when they go to the 360 route of all of our institutions, they, their kids are in school, they hear a certain thing from their teachers, they, their kids are in college, they come back with certain monolithic stories they they turn on the television um and i think what's happened is that the middle class is kind of in a monastery of the mind they're they're dropping out and so first-run hollywood movies are not so popular and people have turned off the nba i, I and, remember a, a, a couple of years ago you wrote an, an article on this more and more middle class people 
who, you know, or, we'll call them ordinary Americans, are checking out from the entertainment and sports and uh, uh, I think they are. media I think. industry. They're, they're, just, they're just withdrawing. Yeah, and they're not, the left hates them. I mean, going back to Richard Hofstetter and the paranoid style and the, the difference between progressivism and populism, they keep saying that these populists are the direct descendants of the Southern agrarians or the racist, but they're not really. They're, they're much different. They're not, they don't have a, uh, the same agendas. as uh, I, I would say much of the old populist agenda has sort of been achieved with eight hour workday and disability and all that stuff. But it, and it was a lot of it was illiberal, but it's more attuned to the aspirations of the poor now. And they're not, but the, the idea is that popular rebellion now has been defined as progressivism is good, even though the progressives have a much more checkered past in some ways than the populists do. If you look at, um, you know, abortion and eugenics and et cetera, Margaret Sanger and Woodrow Wilson and all that stuff, but that's kind of been airbrushed out. So populism has a bad name, but it's really an idea that the middle class is the people who create the laws through their representative. They audit, they censor the laws, they hold their executive branch accountable, and they're in control of their own destiny. And they feel that that's not true anymore. I don't think it is either. You, you, you talk a lot about the administrative state, especially the conflicts between Trump and, and the administrative state and, and the media uh, and, and other elites. To what degree is this growing administrative state, broadly speaking, a, a, a response to a, a middle class that is becoming restive, dissatisfied, unhappy, feeling unrepresented by the elite? Yeah, I, I think what the initially it started during the depression with the uh, new deal and then after world war ii the gi bill and there was many and then the great society and i think a lot of the middle class supported it and, and many of them still support certain aspects of it but what they're worried about is that now it's uh, almost a living organism where people come out of the university with particular degrees in, in government or political science or business, and that they're technocrats. They go right into this area, and it seems to be localized in the state capitals, but especially in that Washington, New York nexus, and it creates these experts, and these people exercise executive, judicial, legislative power, and they're not accountable. And because the state is so huge and so wealthy, they have enormous power. And so a Dr. Fauci, for example, who nominally is the head of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases is not really talking uh, about just infectious diseases. He's talking about whether or not people can have uh, rental agreements anymore that, are, that won't be suspended because he and others will declare a national emergency that so you don't have to pay rent. Or he will say to you, wear no mask, wear one mask, wear two masks. And oh, oh, by the way, that was a platonic lie when I said, don't wear a mask. I did that because you, you're an unthinking person and you would go out and make a run on mask and then the medical profession wouldn't have it. Or we can stop vaccinations when we get 60, 70, 80, 90%. The goalposts always change. And he said, oh, well, I, you know, I did that because uh, if I had said a lower number, people wouldn't get vaccinated. Or I'm not going to be really truthful. I think 
his thinking is about the biology lab and the origins of U.S. money, because if you were to say that, I don't think the American people could handle that their government may, may have had a role in gain-of-function research that resulted in the leak of this terrible virus. So, and the same thing goes true with the James Comey, as I point out, you know, 245 times, I don't know. None of us in the middle class could say that to the IRS. And I've had the IRS call me about a mistake on a tax return. And if I said, I don't know, I don't know, don't remember, that, that's not adequate. And yet nothing happened. Same thing with Robert Mueller. I don't know what the Steele dossier is. I have no idea what the Fusion GPS, the twin pillars of his investigation. James Clapper, I gave the least untruthful answer when I lied. John Brennan, I'm sorry I lied that we, yes, we did spy on the Senate staffer computers. Yes, there are collateral deaths from drone assassination missions. I'm sorry, but they, it just continues. And people feel they're interfering in our political process or we, we don't have control. And I think very briefly in the last election, people got on the wrong track about the election. They kept getting these conspiracy theories about computers and all this, but it had they just kept their eye on the real issue was that in May, uh, March and April, there were people in the administrative state by administrative decree and then people who went to courts who changed the laws as far as how, if you had to have both names or a valid address or the postmark that were very, that really lowered the rejection rate typically of an of a absentee ballot. And that was administratively done. It wasn't done as the constitution suggests by the state legislatures. And so, or Mark Zuckerberg infusing $415 million into pre-selected precincts. And so there, there are powers that be in the government that welcome that or that don't feel that they're responsible to the voters or they feel that they can lie or maybe even they feel they can lie nobly because it's for the greater good of the ignorant. But we've lost account. We've lost control of them is what I'm trying to say. Do you see any waning of populist discontent uh, as we see figures like Fauci and... there wasn't it, isn't it extraordinary for former intelligence heads to appear on, on media all the time and, and opining yeah, in such I, a politically partisan way? Have, have we ever seen this uh, yeah. before? No, no, we haven't. George Marshall didn't even vote. <laughs> David Petraeus, David Petraeus said that he was going to do that, but then we didn't see any of this. And you're quite right. I mean, the, the left threw a fit when. Donald Trump pulled the uh, security clearance of John Brennan, but they were getting paid to go on to MSNBC and CNN and then with a wink and a nod say, my sources tell me, i.e. I still have my security. And then they would spin the most outrageous lies that they knew that, quote unquote, that the president of the United States was a Russian asset. That's the exact word. And then when called in, called in to the Congress under oath, we, and it's leaked out now, they were testifying to the House Intelligence Committee that they had no evidence for that when they were having to put their, you know, their, their narrative on the line, perjury or no perjury. Do you, can you give us the information that what you said and they couldn't do it? Or you had, we had something after, you know, World War II that gravitated into the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And one aspect of Article 88, it says clearly, you shall not disparage the commander in chief. 
And we had we never had this before. I mean, when MacArthur did it or Edmund Walker did it, there was an Arcaris LeMay did it. There was an outrage. And that's one of the reasons, especially in the case of MacArthur, that that was put in. And yet, my God, we had General Mattis compare the president of the United States to Nazis and Nazi like tactics, just what we fought at Normandy. And General McCaffrey said, oh, he canceled the New York Times for the White House. He's a Mussolini figure. And we even had. A great American, Admiral McRaven, wrote an op-ed, said that he should be gone, quote-unquote, sooner or later. And we had Rosa Brooks, the, the very influential lawyer in the Obama Pentagon, who said, you know, that was 10 days after Trump was elected, and said, uh, well, he'd probably be impeached. If that doesn't work, there's always a 25th Amendment, and I shouldn't say this, but there is a chance of a military coup. And then John Nagel and his uh, other Lieutenant Colonel wrote that op-ed and said that it was the duty of the military to get rid of Donald Trump if they thought that he, you know, there was a question about the election. So that was that became typical. I could go on on and on about General, General McChrystal or uh, Michael Hayden, a four-star general, texting that Trump supporters that were unvaccinated should go back to Afghanistan and stay there. That was unprecedented that you have an active retired military that A, was so politicized, and B, uh, in a revolving door fashion, going back into General Dynamics, Raytheon, Lockheed, Northrop, with the complete approval by their silence of the once hectoring left, because they thought, and they knew that. So they were basically parroting left-wing corporate bromides and cliches, and then they were going in from the corporate boardroom or going back out to it. All of them were, all the names that I, I, I mentioned. And we've never had that before. And they're unelected, but they have enormous influence because they still have subordinates in the Pentagon. They're masters of the Pentagon procurement labyrinth. And so uh, they're another example of, I, I think we need to expand that military industrial complex into the military intelligence investigation investigatory Pentagon complex because, boy, they, they have enormous control and they're not subject to audit and they mock the laws that they're supposed to obey. I, I think that point, we see them mocking the laws that everyone is supposed to obey and that that causes a general deterioration of citizenship. You know, if, if rules yep. are just partial, the rules don't mean that much a- anymore. You don't feel yep, so yep. good about it because exercising your responsibilities as a citizen. No, absolutely. That's why from the very beginning, I mean, the idea that justice has a mask over her eyes, a very Roman concept. And that was what, and I mentioned that in the book, that is what enrages people the most, the asymmetry of the application of laws. And the middle class looks at the law and they say, where is my exemption? Because if you're very poor or you're not a citizen, you just walk with exemption. The first thing you do when you cross the border is you break the law. The second thing is you reside illegally. And the third, often you get illegal uh, identification to perpetuate one and two. I have, if I'm a soldier or federal employee and I've had a bad case of COVID, my antibody level is up to 2000, doesn't matter. I will be vaccinated. I have to, to get my job. These people mock the law and don't have to be vaccinated. If I'm flying refugees in from Afghanistan, I have to be vaccinated, they don't. So there's a feeling that the poor are romanticized, are exempt, and they don't have to follow the same laws. And then they look at these privileges, whether they're government 
grandees or the wealthy, and they say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you're not supposed to put a private money as a law against it into pre-selected precincts to basically take over the government's responsibility for counting ballots. And there's no, there's no consequences or there's no consequences when people violate the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There's no consequences when the 1947, 53 and 1986 Goldwater-Nichols law say specifically the Joint Chiefs is an advisory body. They shall not interrupt the chain of command. It's illegal to do that. And yet we have General Milley that goes in and calls these four stars and says, anything that comes from the White House in matters of nuclear policy or strategy, it comes through me. And oh, by the way, I'm going to call up my counterpart and set a new strategic uh, narrative that if any, any aggressive proposal comes from Donald Trump, I'm going to warn him first. That's illegal, but he's not going to He's not going to face any consequences for that. And let's add, Professor Hansen, that when all this comes out, nothing happens. Nothing happens. No, <laughs> nothing happens. We know nothing happens. So the CI, the FBI says, you know what? We lost all the phones of the people. We, they were supposed to turn them in. Peter Strzok, uh, Miss Page, they're gone. Uh, you know what? They, we just erased them. We inadvertently erased them. And Hillary Clinton has a computer. She says. This was this was hacked by Russians. Oh, by the way, FBI, you're not going to touch it. I'm going to call my friends from CrowdStrike that you know very well, and they're going to examine it. And then, oh, by the way, they told they examined it. We're not going to give it to you, but they tell us that it was Russian. It wasn't. Uh, we don't have any evidence that it was. And the FBI outsourced that to a friend of Hillary's. It makes no sense. And so Hunter Biden, I mean, my gosh. On his laptop, he talks about the president of the United States as the big guy and Mr. 10 percent. And all it would take would be about a two hour investigation to say, where did the income that went to the big guy end up? Is it in this bank account, this bank account, this beach home? It wouldn't be very hard to do, but it's, a, it's a exempt. So I think what a lot of Americans are doing in the elite, especially, they're saying, I've got to get insurance from this. I think that's a large part of the woke movement. A lot of people say, you know what, when you are woke and loudly so, then you're going to get an exemption from this permanent state. And they're not going to quite go after you to the same reason that they're going to go after the owners of Parler or something, tie them up in court, or they're not going to go after certain people that object if you go to a board meeting and you're very loud and you say, I feel that this is a racist and I'm I'm underrepresented and you disrupt it, it's not going to be as nearly as bad if you go as the, these parents are and criticize critical race theory. In my own experience, I can tell you that people will write you or email and you probably have had the same experience. So, yes, I agree with you, but, you know, I'm just not in a position to say anything. And then it's, it's more than that. When you start to look at what they're saying they are saying things that are very woke, but they don't believe them. It's kind of, I think what I'm getting at is we're getting into the cynicism of the late Eastern European Soviet system of the, the, the late 80s, that people don't believe this stuff anymore, but they feel it's absolutely essential for their permanent employment or their career aspirations. There is much more in the book, uh, Sanctuary Cities, uh, Globalization, Immigration, the Elections, uh, the Role of the Media, 
in the book, which is The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Professor Hansen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.